Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Thanks for that, Polly. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, Pimana Assad, who's a Labour councillor, and David Curtin, who's the leader of the Heritage Party. Good evening to both of you. And you know the drill um, on Tubes and Co, don't you? It's not just about us here. It's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me, gbviews, at gbnews.uk is the email. Uh, you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Uh, some of you have been in touch already. Um, did you watch that court TV? We discussed it last night about whether or not that was a good idea or not. Uh, a few of you have been in touch there about the verdict that you were watching. Um, basically saying so much for life sentencing, says Peter. It ended up pretty much at nine years as a minimum. She might as well have sent him home in a chauffeur-driven car. <laughs> that's what Peter, uh, That's the views of Pete. See, this is the thing, isn't it, with this whole court TV? It's going to turn us all into... Uh, experts, I don't envy the judges now, who are going to have all of their kind of words picked over by each and every one of us. Uh, but if you did watch that, let me know your thoughts on it. And also, did you see the little row that's been brewing today as well about England, uh, the women's football team, Lionesses? Some people now are saying that they should be renamed the Lions because apparently Lionesses is sexist. Oh, get a life. If you're one of those people that sit there and think to yourself, you know, the, the women's football team shouldn't be lionesses, it should be lions. Oh, I wonder, I mean, oh, I have no words, quite frankly. I just think that you need to find other things to worry about. The lionesses, very proud of them and nothing wrong with the name, if you ask me, that is for sure. Uh, let me know your thoughts on tonight's stories. We'll be talking about whether or not we should go back to basics when it comes to policing. Uh, Liz... V. Rishi, of course, in the leadership race. Liz Truss is saying that she's going to get tough on crime. I mean, I've got to be honest, if I had a pound for every time I heard that, would be absolutely minted. What does it mean and is it ever going to happen? I want to get into that. And also the Tavistock Clinic, that has been ordered to shut down. I think that's jolly good. Uh, where do you stand on it? And council houses, should anyone be able to have the right to a council house? What about if you have one and say your earnings change? Is there a cut-off point? Should you get to the point where if you have this amount of earnings, you're out the door and it's the next person's turn? You tell me your thoughts on that. One of my viewers already has said, absolutely not. Your council house is your home. Your earnings are irrelevant. And if any of the neighbours have got nothing better to do, then whinge about your earnings and they need to get a life. There you go. That's one of my viewers' thoughts already on that topic. Let me know yours. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email address. So, ahead of tonight's debate with uh, Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss has been talking tough on crime, shall we say, we'll put it mildly. She says that she would expect police forces to cut homicide, serious violence and neighbourhood crime by 20% ahead of the next election. She said, and I quote, it's time for the police to get back to basics and spend their time investigating real crimes, not Twitter hours and hurt feelings. Someone that's actually doing this, uh, getting back to basics, if you will, is the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester Police. He says his force is fast improving because of their own back-to-basics approach. This involves things like uh, getting rid of so-called designer stubble, 
making sure if you've got boots on, they're smart and they're polished, making sure that you just look well. He reckons if you take care of the small things, the bigger things, they'll take care of themselves. Pemala Asad, where do you stand on all of this back to basics policing? So, I mean, I wish that change in uniform and polishing your boots and tying up your hair would actually fix um, the trust in police at the moment. What we have and what we've seen is that Greater Manchester Police were actually put in special measures because they didn't record up to 80,000 crimes. Mm. Um, and, you know, the police have always said that one of the reasons for this is because of Tory cuts to the police force of 20,000 over the last 12 years. Um, well, the Tories have said that they've reversed those cuts and they're trying to employ 20,000 police officers now. But clearly this hasn't made a difference in a lot of police forces up and down the country. And with Greater Manchester Police, I mean, he's saying he's increased, what is it, stop um, crimes by 60%, um, and that he's had to open up a new cell for, for criminals to be placed in. It's, I wish it was like this, but I just don't think that that's, the, that's what is going to get the police to change, because people really just want the police to pick up the phone and actually report, be able to be there when they report crimes happening to them. Do you think, though, Pamana, that we uh, might have to accept in this day and age that, you know, Liz Truss is basically saying things like, if there's a burglary, there should be a policeman at the door. Is that really realistic, reasonable? That should be. I mean, it was like that back in the day. <laughs> uh, when you reported a burglary, a policeman would show up. There'd be a whole investigation of your house. I'm not sure whether it would be solved and they would catch the criminals, but it would make people feel like, actually, the police is there and they're listening and they're trying to help me uh, if my house is burgled. Right now, you don't get that. You call the police, they don't show up. If you, if you I don't know... Even you get a crime number. Yeah, you get a crime number, but you don't get anything else. Even catalytic converter thefts, they, they hardly show up for that. You know, these are sometimes really aggressive things that happen to people right outside their front doors and the police don't turn up. Where do you stand at all, David? Yeah, look, it sounds good, but I don't trust that she's going to do anything about it because she's been in the Conservative Party that's been in power for 12 years. And I, I actually agree with Pemana, but one of the reasons that we have really bad policing at the moment is that they've cut the numbers of police by 20,000 over England and Wales in that time. And now they're trying to increase that again, but that's with an increased population as well. So they just want to get another 20,000 to get back to where we were, but we need more uh, than what we had before. But th there's also the case, you know... I mean, I do I do agree with the Greater Manchester Police Chief there that you know, police should be smart. You know, they shouldn't be <laughs> going out with stubbles, tattoos, um, with their shirts hanging out and things like that. And they shouldn't be uh, prancing around in rainbow helmets either and sort of doing things like uh, we see in some cases the Metropolitan Police are guilty of this with, like, Notting Hill Carnival. We've seen pictures of some police twerking <laughs> with people who are actually the, the festival goers there. I mean, that is not going to build respect uh, for the police at all. But another issue, which we haven't mentioned yet, is the whole wokery that has uh, infested the police force, as well as, like, many other areas of society. And, you know, uh, you know, Liz Truss saying what I've been saying for four or five years, you know, police the streets, not our tweets. Get the police cutting down burglary, cutting down murder, cutting down fraud, etc., uh, rather than chasing hurty tweets on the internet. But we also hear that Liz Truss wants to ban catcalling and wolf whistling, which is as woke as you can get. I mean, what's she going to do? Is she going to have the police going around arresting people for wolf whistling, even if someone likes it or not? I mean, so I think that she's Ooh. sending out mixed I'm messages have to there disagree. and she doesn't really... What, what, um... what do you want to disagree with? What I mean, what is wokery? 
What, what is your definition of wokery? Well, I, you know, I've just given an example. I mean, sending what, the police calling, to arrest people. Calling for... and harassment on the street is well, wokery. Well, that's not, that's not harassment. You're, you're harassment, harassment is a did specific you just, I'm crime. I'm sorry, did you just say that catcalling and harassment shouldn't be tackled by the police? No, harassment should be tackled, but if someone is making <laughs> a bit of banter or something, it depends on, but it's not on actually, how it's done. I mean, if for you... some people, no, that I disagree, because some people, it's mm, a bit of banter, you might know someone, and they accept it, but other people, mm -mm. it's harassment. You've got to you, look you at the situation. But wokery is something that... You know, the whole equality, diversion, inclusion agenda, which is everywhere, and, and that's actually... Please spend more time focusing on that than actually on dealing with real crime like burglary. You're saying, pack it in, policing things like wolf whistling, etc. You're not having any of that tonight. No, I'm not. I think that if work means being inclusive, I'm all for it. I don't care if the police have rainbow colours on their cars as long as they tackle crime. I think they can do both. I think they can be inclusive and go and do the woke stuff quote in, quote out, as well as tackling crime. I think that the Greater Manchester Police, the, this guy, he's got it right. He knows it's, it's about strategy and it's about planning. It's about keeping things simple in some senses. You know, these big, long documents. That's not what, what police forces need. They just need a really simple plan and targets and meeting those targets. What I don't agree with, though, <clears throat> is saying that the police shouldn't investigate catcalling or harassment on the street. The majority of young girls of school age, in school uniform, are the people that get catcalled and harassed on the street. There's research done on this, there's surveys done on this. It impacts their mental health, it impacts some of their life outcomes sometimes. Um, you know, people have been stalked, things okay, have happened on, to, to, to young girls. Being but... wolf whistled on the street impacts a girl's life outcomes. Well, no, not, not fully like that. What I mean is, if some girls, if that happens to them, sometimes it continues and they get stalked and other things that it really okay, impacts well, their well, mental health. And I do think, and it is actually in the, in the currently, by this Conservative government, street harassment in public spaces is considered a form of gender-based violence. And the police have to do something about well, it. Well, well, men and women. Well, that can told both you, get didn't harassed. it? Well, no. I mean, well, I tried to. But no, men and women can both get harassed. And of course, <laughs> harassment, abuse, stalking are crimes. But actually saying she wants to criminalise the specific thing of catcalling, you know, that's something that has been done for a long time. And it depends on the context. And that's the thing. When something is just a bit of banter in one case, but then is real harassment in another case, you have to make a distinction. But so, who defines? Because um, one man's banter is another person's harassment. This, so this is where actually law gets very difficult <laughs> and you need the courts to kind of decide and, and, and make a judgment on that. The but, courts to decide? So you do think the courts should decide? Well, no, as I said, harassment is a, a crime, OK? But I don't think that catcalling specifically should be a crime or wolf whistling for example, something that people have done for ages, and some people like it. And, you know, some some, some women people like being some, some, some on women the appreciate a wolf whistle. I, d I by don't builders. think that's true. Some women don't appreciate it. It's I really fact. don't it think that's true. I think you need to go and evaluate that. that no, absolutely there. not. It depends on the I person. I really genuinely think, and that, that's something that shouldn't that. be a crime. But you know, the majority said, of women in the country is. don't. But let's get back to the main issue. Because then no one can hear anyone, and then everyone's at home going, "What is this din?" I've been told off. You just said that you just said that no one likes being. Um, I don't think they do. I think the majority of women would say that they I've they don't like it. Someone, where have you gone, Carol? Ago, Carol says, "I wish someone would wolf whistle at me. It would make me feel good." That's what Carol says, my viewer. Well, I think that maybe Carol should look up a campaign called Crime Not Compliment um, on Twitter. It's run by young uh, women uh, in the UK who are campaigning to make catcalling and, and street harassment a crime. See, that is a perfect example of woke And I think people should Something look that, up that is because just that will give you stories and understanding of 
people's experiences, lived but again, experiences. It depends on the person, and you can't generalize for everybody and say that all women feel the same. All I think men we're feel like the moving same. away from or, what the story no, is. No, right, but... absolutely. Well, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> I discussion. Don't mind but, but you know, get, I mean, get, getting back to where, where, is, where this started, but I was saying that police shouldn't be walking around with, around with rainbow helmets, spending money painting their cars with rainbows and so on, twerking at festivals, all those kind of things don't generate respect for the police. They should be doing their main job, which is to find people who are burglars, fraudsters, thieves, murderers, assaulters, gangsters, and so on, and bringing them to justice. I mean, we only have a clear-up rate of 3% uh, for burglary. I mean, that's appalling. And, you know, it's fine for Liz Truss to say that, but what's she going to do about it? Probably not much at all. Um, I've got to say, lots of women are now getting in contact to say that they do like being wolf-whistled. And I'm not making this up. <laughs> I'm not making it Thank up. Thank you. Um, lots of people. Karen says, I absolutely love it. Pauline says, I miss being wolf-whistled at. Uh, jeering and abusive language, though, is something else. Um, I love a whistle. wolf-whistle, says Joyce. Uh, that is coming through thick and fast. Um, let me ask you about these rainbow cars and stuff mm. like that, in inclusivity or whatever the technology <clears> is. Don't you just think when a police car turns up to the scene of a serious crime and it's all decked in rainbows and all the rest of it, it just looks a bit stupid. And if that was if that was someone that I knew who had just been seriously hurt and a police car turned up decked out in a rainbow and all the rest of it, I would think it was akin to some kind of clown car and I would probably find it a little bit insulting. So the majority of police cars aren't decked out in rainbow colours, that's the first thing. Second, I wouldn't care what colour the police car is as long as it turned up. I think that's the basics. The police just need to turn up when someone's reporting a crime and actually investigate and go out there and catch the criminals. That's the bottom line. I really don't care what rainbow colour, blue or whatever it is, but the majority of police cars are not in rainbow colour. Um, and also, um, some police actually lack having vehicles because they said that they don't have um, the investment to buy um, police cars, so some of them actually use um, their own cars sometimes with a blue light. Well, if they didn't spend so much money spraying their cars with rainbows, they'd have a bit more money to I buy mean, I think that needs cars. to be investigated to see that, that claim, but I don't think it's true. I, I can tell you, the thing that's... See, we're having a good conversation here about um, uh, crime, policing, priorities, etc. And the thing that's getting you all talking more than anything right now is wolf whistling. Wolf whistling. That is the thing that you're all wanting to talk to me about. Kath says, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a wolf whistle. It cheers up your day. Um, Janine says, I've never heard such <coughs> nonsense. The problem is that many young people are too delicate to cope with a wolf whistle. We take everything far too seriously these days. Um, again, there's just... Aline uh, uh, says, uh, Pamana needs to grow up. It's oh. flattering, she says. Can I ask all of them to put, um, say how old they are? Because it would be interesting to, to, to find Why? out. Why? What difference that make? Because I think all the research that I've seen and all the data I've seen, all the surveys on catcalling and whistling in public, young women, specifically, have said that they don't like it. So it would be interesting to understand if older women do, then. Does it depend on who is doing the wolf whistle? So if it was David Beckham giving you a wolf whistle, or if it was like a fat old builder... I don't think David Beckham road, would whistle. I know, but that's like... I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but half yeah. devil's advocate. If it was, say, David Beckham... But it's not, though, is it? It's when you're walking down the street, it's usually older men doing it at younger women. Yeah, doing it at younger teenage girls. But then if you had your way and all of the coppers was busy investigating 
all the old but parents they're not, are though. whistling at the women, they wouldn't have any police and etc. to be doing the bear But they're not, though. That's stuff. the thing. Uh, they're not, though. And, and I never said that they should. What I'm saying is that it should be taken seriously, that it does impact people's mental health. The thing is, at the moment, as I've said, harassment, if someone feels they've been harassed, they can make a police report and the police can come and investigate it, but you shouldn't ban wolf whistling as a specific crime. But then, again, as, we, as the thing I do agree with you with is, is that we need more police and they should be going back and doing community policing because that has just been devastated and completely gone. It's completely gone. And most of the police is reactive at the moment rather than proactive of trying to find out where criminals are, find out where gangs are going in and closing them down. Uh, and so that is an issue as well. I mean, I would love for the police to go and actually investigate harassment and stalking, but the issue is that they don't even do that properly. Um, and so the, the rates of conviction for rape and for stalking and for harassment are so low as well in this country. And I think that that needs to be taken seriously because it does impact people's lives. There are women out there who've had to move into safe houses and have to change where they live just because they can't get rid of a stalker. And that's serious. Yeah, that's that is serious. Of course it's yeah. serious, yeah. yeah, that's yeah of serious. course. But we don't have police investigating that even. So I think before we even get to yeah. catcalling and the rest of it, I think that needs to be taken but head again, on. And violence against women and girls should be taken as a serious, you know, issue within police, and they should be taken that seriously. It's not, unfortunately, even well, though it's in the plan, it's they, they aren't putting resources towards it. Well, of and course, all, all violent crime should be taken yeah. seriously. But what the point I'm making about wokery is that we have 120,000 people who have been put on a database of non-criminal hate crime. Not non... What is it? Not... not um, hate, hate incidents. Non-crime hate yeah, non -crime incidents. Hate. That, that's the word yeah. I was looking for. I mean, so they spent so much time investigating these non-crime hate incidents, which is a massive waste of time. A lot of them are people who have said, oh, I don't like what someone said on Twitter. And then they spend all their time, or a lot of time, oh, investigating those things. So Who, which police forces investigating to... Twitter comments? I would love to know. All of them. I get all lots of, them, of abuse especially, on Twitter. The police always the tell me they can't investigate, they can't do anything about it because no harm has been done. Well, I mean, especially so, the Metropolitan Police. No, I Obviously, I used to be on the London Assembly and I used to question Sadiq Khan and he was all over that. I mean, that was his thing. He set up a whole unit to investigate um, hurty tweets and so on and non-crime aid incidents and put £2 million into the budget. I mean, that was such a waste of money, such a waste of time. And then the serious thing is that people who haven't committed a crime find themselves on the police database rather than the police using that time, that money and those resources to go and find burglars or to find people who are perpetrating violence, as you said. Well, there you go. Let me know your thoughts on that. Uh, I've got to say, pretty much every single person that's emailed in uh, regarding is in favour of it. Um, and so I'm 63 and I still get the occasional wolf whistle. I'm just I'm laughing because the emails <laughs> really are coming. I'm not laughing at you, Andy, the wolf whistle that seems to be. I'm just laughing at how many emails I'm getting uh, just about everyone seemingly loving being wolf whistle. I'm going to find you, if you are out there and you're in the Camber Pomana, which thinks it's wrong, it's inappropriate and the police should be there uh, quicker than a quick thing from Quickland if someone's whistling, you tell me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. If you're out there and you're, you are offended by wolf whistling, I'm determined to find you, so get in touch with me and let me know. David says, welcome to the UK, where everything is policed except crime. <laughs>
and Heritage Party uh, leader David Curtin. We've just been having a random chat about what constitutes uh, right wing, left wing, far right these days. I don't know, it's a minefield, isn't it? Well, that was uh, what we were just talking about as we returned to the show. And of course, wolf whistling, lots of you uh, getting in touch still, even still as I speak, uh, about wolf whistling, basically saying you all love it. Uh, Pamela was saying basically that's because you're all a bit older. Uh, whereas oh Kerry, my God. Kerry, you was saying I that. was, I was, that's true. <laughs> and I Kerry was. has emailed in to debunk that theory because she's only 21 and she loves it. Well, so there you go. And my whistle is actually one of the things that I am most proud of, I have to say. I've spent years uh, fine-tuning it. It is a skill to be able to whistle properly, I would say. Um, anyway, you can keep letting me know your thoughts on that topic, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Now let's move on, shall we? It's been announced today that the NHS is shutting down the UK's only dedicated gender identity clinic for children and young people at the Tavistock and Portman uh, NHS Foundation Trust. The clinic is going to have to shut by spring. Um, I've got to say, this has been quite a controversial clinic, to put it mildly. Uh, it's now been criticised in an independent review led by Dr Hilary Cass. Uh, they're now going to set up a new framework, basically, which is going to be regional centres, uh, starting with two. They might go up to seven or eight uh, of these centres that apparently will better meet the patient's needs. Now... Joining me to talk about this is Helen Joyce, who is the author of Trans When Ideology Meets Reality and Director of Advocacy at Sex Matters. Thanks for joining me, Helen. Now, to some of my Hi. viewers that might not be perhaps familiar with this, just explain why this is a big deal today. So the way that the gender identity clinic works in London is that you can be referred from anywhere in England and the waiting lists are very long. So if a kid says that they've got gender identity issues, you know, a child who's a girl says that she identifies as a boy or vice versa, basically doctors will tend to park everything else that's happening with that kid and put the kid on the waiting list at JIDS, as the clinic is known in the Tavistock. And, the, you know, the kids that Tavistock sees have many other problems. Uh, they have very high rates of autistic spectrum disorders, self-harm, depression, anxiety, all of these sorts of things. And those things aren't dealt with because there's this weird way that as soon as somebody says gender, they don't do anything else. So what Dr. Hilary Cass said was that this was really not serving the patients properly. And the second problem is that the Tavistock has this hugely ideological approach. It hasn't been doing good medicine, it hasn't been keeping records, it hasn't been doing proper research, it hasn't been investigating the reasons behind a child's trans identity. They've just been assuming that a child who says, I'm trans, is trans, and putting them on these very poorly researched uh, pathways with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. So all in all, I think the Tavistock can't be rescued. I think it's such a poor and such an ideologically driven service that it's brilliant that it's been closed down. And the things that Dr Hilary Cass says about what will replace it really give me hope that something better will be offered to these children in the future. And Helen, what would you say to any viewers that are kind of saying, look, you know, uh, the number of trans people in this country is very, very small. This is a tiny issue. Why do the media keep focusing on issues like this? What would you say to them uh, in terms of how important this all is? I think there's two answers, and one is that, yes, it might not be very many children who end up going down the medical pathway, but this medical pathway is one that leads to sterility, to not being able to have an orgasm as an adult, and perhaps, if you're put on puberty blockers, to mental problems as well. Nobody knows the long-term impact of this particular um, treatment pathway because the research has been so poor. So I don't know how many children you think have to be sterilised before that's actually a serious issue. 
And the second yeah. thing is that because of the existence of some children or some adults as well, who identify as trans, we've seen a big shift in everybody's lives. Everybody is now meant to have a gender identity. And all sorts of things that everybody uses, like single sex services or sports that are divided between men and women or rape crisis centers, these are now meant to be based on gender identity, not actually on sex. So yes, it's a tiny number of people, but it's this kind of tail wagging the dog situation. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Helen, thank you very much for your time and for your insight on this. Uh, David Curtin, I'll come to you on this mm. one. Where do you stand on it? You know, I completely agree with everything that Helen said, and I was very happy when I heard that this is closing down today, or not today, but uh, next uh, next year, but they announced it today. But then I heard that they're going to open six or seven centres around the country. So, you know, they're still going to be referring people from the NHS to gender identity clinics. So I hope that they don't just do the same thing as what's been happening in the Tavistock and they start prescribing... Um, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones as well. I mean, because it's terrible, um, as Helen said there, that there's a lot of children, I think there's 5,000 who've been referred this year. And if they go on to this treatment, they're going to be, you know, their, their development is going to be arrested in terms of puberty and so on. And many of them, uh, up to 98% of them, it's just a phase they go through or it's something else, some other um, mental disorder that they may have, you know, you know w whether it's depression or autism or something... Um, and that you need to treat that as well. So what you were saying is, is a little bit hopeful, but I would question the whole notion that there is something called gender that's different to biological sex, because this was first proposed in the 1950s by a professor in the US called John Money, who did a lot of very, very unethical experiments on children, and then it was popularised by another American academic in the 1990s called Judith Butler, who wrote a book called Gender Trouble, and then it's been mainstreamed in education and then in society as a whole. But, I mean, I don't accept this premise. You're either a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, you're male or female, and you're not a person who's trapped in the wrong body. Yeah, I mean, some people that are genuinely trans uh, would argue against that, I'm sure. Um, I'm conscious that nobody on this panel is trans, at least not that I know of. Um, so I know there are some people that would say that they're genuinely trans. They would really push back against what you're saying. For me, the concern here is that I just feel um, that trans... Um, you know, transgender is obviously a thing, but I worry so much, Pimana, about this whole kind of... To me, it seems like an overall trend that uh, children... I mean, if you look at TikTok, this has been almost just pushed daily, well, more than daily, like hourly, to children. You can change your gender, you can change this, you don't have to be a boy, you don't have to be a girl, you can be this, that and the other and all the rest of it. And I worry about the mental health um, issues that are coming down the pipe for all of this because, as we've just been hearing, and anyone that reads the CAST report today will see that the long-term effects, etc., of things like puberty blockers, all these hormones that we're pumping children with, we simply just don't understand whether or not there's side effects. And even having this conversation is quite toxic. And I'll take it to your party as an example. One of the things that people will say will cost your party at the next election <coughs> is the conversation around what is a woman and what is this and all the rest of it. So I think that this issue, the toxicity around the debate, the nervousness, the unease in which people feel when discussing it, I think it's a key problem. Yeah, I agree. It is a key problem. And I think that the Labour Party has to get its act together when it comes to these issues and actually find a way forward that 
bridges us between what the public think and what our members think and try and bring people together on a, on a compromise or a way forward. But I think in terms of this specific case with this clinic, I think it's right um, that it's been closed because the independent review specifically stated that it did not provide the, the mental health um, support to children that should have been there from right from the start. Um, and, and I think one of the positive things about this is that whilst this has now been closed, this clinic, that there will be um, you know, other clinics that will open. Um, and it's right that there, there will be other clinics so that those who want to be referred can be and that there's a space for their cases to be investigated. But I think the real good thing here is that there'll be leading children's hospitals involved in some of this, such as Great Ormond Street um, uh, a Hospital, who will have a say in some of the mental health support and, and the things that your guest Helen was talking about. Yeah, so just uh, to be clear, so in the spring, that's when they're talking about closing this. They're simultaneously talking about opening up another two. So one would be in London. That would be a partnership between Evelina and Great Ormond Street. Then you'd have one uh, in the northwest, which is a partnership between Alder here and uh, Royal Manchester, I think it is, Hospital. I just worry, um, and I know that some people, this issue even divides opinions because some people will say, well, if the media stopped talking about all this stuff, it would all go away. But as a mum to a child, a little boy, I think that is the wrong approach because I think that the worst thing that can happen is that all of this stuff goes on. Um, so people being prescribed puberty blockers without knowing the long-term effects of it. Children uh, who say, oh, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. That just being kind of indulged without being um, robustly kind of explored, challenged, checked, all the rest of it. I think if that happens... In under shadows, without mm. focus, without scrutiny, we're going to end up in goodness only knows where. So I think it's absolutely vital and important that we do kind of cover these issues uh, for the greater good of all of our children, grandchildren, whatever it is that you have. Final word to you on this, David. Yeah, well, I was a teacher for 20 years before I got into politics. And when I was, I finished teaching in 2016. No-one really ever spoke about it up until then, but it's only really in the last five years or six years that this has just exploded, and it's exploded because you have NGOs like Stonewall and so on going into schools and actually promoting transgenderism, and they're funded by the government. We need to stop that, and then that is not going to stop causing the confusion to children, and then there will be less people who need to be referred. And people who do genuinely have gender dysphoria, which is only a small number of people who are getting referred, can then get the help that they need. Yeah, Colin, for example, is one of the people I've just been mentioning. He's just emailed in and said, but Michelle, um, you know, a recent poll showed that only what he says, 0.7 of the population is interested um, in trans issues. Why are you giving it so much airtime? Air we do not care, says Colin. Uh, because, Colin, I think it is essential, actually, to look at what is going on when it comes to our children. Uh, if you've got children, do you have grandchildren? Uh, if your children are perhaps grown up, some of the things that are, are being... These children are being bombarded with, whether it's in places like schools, uh, you know, it's just so much stuff these days that I worry for the long-term mental health of children. And I have to say, I can make no apology, actually, for shining a light on things, uh, making sure that children... Uh, being safeguarded and protected as much as possible, I think, is key. Anyway, let me know your thoughts. GBviews at gbnews.uk is the email address that you can get hold of us on. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. With me, Michelle Jubery, keeping me company until 7, Labour Councillor Pamana Assad and Heritage Party leader David Curtin. Just been having a little chat in the break there just about 
the level of uncomfortableness um, that some people feel when discussing the whole kind of trans issue because they don't want to offend anyone, they don't know what to say, um, you know, whether or not you can even say these days that a woman has a penis and... Uh, no, a man has a... <laughs> around, whether you can say a woman has a vagina and a man has a penis and all the rest of it. Uh, what I say to that is, come on, uh, we all know... Uh, we all know facts uh, from fiction and more people just need to be brave enough to actually... Uh, not turn a blind eye to silliness, that's what I say. Anyway, uh, Nigel Farage joins us at 7 o'clock. Nigel, good evening to you. What have you got for us? Good evening. We're going to debate why are we not taking defence more seriously. Dire warnings from Sir Stephen Lovegrove, our National Security Advisor overnight. Yet no debate, it seems, in the contest to be Prime Minister. We'll look at why 8 million people are on antidepressants when new evidence suggests it's not caused by a chemical imbalance. We'll ask why are we throwing back tons of fish into the English Channel when we voted Brexit to take back control of our seas. And joining me on Talking Pints, one of the great eccentrics of our times, Lempit Opic. Sounds great. We'll see you at 7 o'clock, Nigel. Right, let move, let's move on then, shall we? Uh, the RMT deputy leader, Eddie Dempsey, has been criticised this week for living in a council flat despite what many call a very healthy salary. Critics are saying that thousands of more needy people are waiting on a housing list and that if you earn, say, £80,000 £80, per annum, you shouldn't be in council housing. Uh, let's cut to the chase with this. I mean, I'm using Eddie Dempsey as the hook because this has brought the conversation back to the fore, but it's not about him, it's about the concept generally. If someone's earning 80 grand a year, whoever they are is irrelevant, should they be in council property? I think it's more complex than just about how much you're earning and whether you're, you're living in a council house or whether you should be kicked out of a council house. Ma the majority of people who are living in council houses have got that house after waiting for 10 to 20 years because the social housing register is so long in majority of London councils, but also outside of the country. Um, and so you have to meet a specific criteria to even get a council house in the first place. So you have to meet that criteria in order to be able to, you know, bid <clears throat> on the system for a council house to then get it and be living in it for so many years. Of course, people naturally will change jobs and sometimes their circumstances will change. Um, you know, they might, you know, I, I think a house is a fundamental you know, right that people should have um, and that it helps people get a better start in life. Um, but we also have to understand that there are housing association homes out there that's privately owned by a company, but they rent it out on local government rates. So the benefit rate, that's what they charge you. So it's as a, as a subsidized rate uh, of rent rather than the market rate of rent. Um, but I, I think with this case, with the RMT union boss, I think it's you know, circumstances are different. Sometimes people don't have the secure income. Sometimes people don't, you know, they can't guarantee or be able to save up for a deposit to buy a house. So it's really difficult for them to just be kicked out of their council house and to go and move into private accommodation because it's hard. There's a cost of living crisis right now and then to have, be having this conversation, I think, is it's tough. Where do you stand on it? So what Pamana is mm. saying that if to get this house in the first place, you've got to stand in line, you've got to wait for years and years, etc. And then when you get one, your circumstances might change, which is fair enough. Mm. But if your circumstances do change then, shouldn't it only be right and fair that when you start earning 80 grand or whatever, you then move into your own uh, funded accommodation mm. and let someone else that isn't anywhere close to that salary, can't afford uh, decent housing options, give that house to them? 
You know what, to, to some extent I do agree with Pamana that it is a little bit more complex than just looking at a specific salary. Look, I'm no fan of the RMT bosses and Eddie Dempsey, but you know, in, in some cases, you know, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at 80,000 where his salary is? You might not like him, but then there might be a family with a single earner living in London, which is very expensive, with three or four kids who've got a secure tenancy. Do you then say, well, because you're over 80,000 or 70,000 or 100,000, you have to leave your home? Where I would make uh, a, um, um, a rule and a distinction is that you don't own any other property. So if you're living in a council house and then you go and buy something else and you do, for example, buy to let, you, you give up your council tenancy because it's absolutely wrong that someone should own a property and still live in a I council think house. I allowed a council property if you owned a property. No, mm. you're not. But there, there are, I mean, as I say, I was on, before in the last section, I was on the London Assembly uh, for five years and I know all across London, in, in every borough, there are people who are illegally subletting council homes. They've got secure tenancies, but then they go and move somewhere else and then they sublet their council home to another family or somebody and then they're making a massive profit and there just aren't the checks done by the local councils on people who are doing this. So this is a big problem and that's one of the things that is contributing to the um, shortage of council homes. There's a couple of other things as well um, that, you know, might surprise you, Pimana. I am not a big fan of the whole um, um, right to buy scheme which was a very good idea in the 1980s. And in the 1980s, a lot of people got that from Thatcher. It was brilliant for those people at that time. But 30 years down the line, we got the situation where now there's a dearth of council but homes all around the that's because they didn't the replenish place. the stock. They sold it off. And exactly. Because they got 70% discounts. And then whatever money went into the councils, there wasn't enough then to, you know, to, to, to build new council houses. And if they did, then they could have got right to buy as well. So every time uh, people buy at council houses, is the council loses money, so but then they right stop doing it. right to buy is coming back as a thing now, isn't it? And I guess it is mm. what you're saying. If you want to sell this stuff at a discount, mm. how are you then replenishing it? And is it fair? And I'm not making it about Eddie Dempsey, by the way. I couldn't care less about him. I'm just using that as the hook because that's why it's suddenly back in the news again today. It's not about him. It's just about the concept generally. If you've got all of these people that are not earning a lot of money, that physically, financially cannot afford mm. uh, deposits or anything else, they have no choice but to get social housing. Is it fair, then, that you have people in social housing whose circumstances have changed and they could mm. afford? Yes, you'd have to scrimp and scrape, but so does everyone that's not in council housing in order to afford their home. So I think that it's not just about, you know, having a council house. Um, it's also about family and community. You know, people move into these homes after waiting 10 to 20 years, and then they create a home out of that, and they build a community um, network and connection. Their kids go to local schools, they get local jobs. <clears throat> and that in itself is also really important to consider. Uh, but they could buy a private to, house in the same community. If, if they could, they, then they sh I think that they should look at all the options available. But like I said, it's really difficult to save for a deposit one and two. Sometimes people are not in secure employment and the future changes, which is why they believe that they should stay. And also complex family, you know, with one breadwinner in the family or two, and that kicks you up the 80K threshold, for example, should that person be, be removed from a council house. You know, these are complex situations. But just to come back to the right to buy scheme, I actually think the right to buy scheme is a really good scheme. 
Um, and, I, and, I, and I disagree with it not being a good scheme. And I know that it was Margaret Thatcher's idea and it's a conservative, but I actually think it's a good scheme because it allows people to get onto the property ladder. It allows people to buy a home at a discount after having lived there for five to 10 years, because there's a set rule on right to buy. You have to have lived in the, mm -hmm. in the council home for, for quite some time before you get a discount on it. What I don't agree with this, that the scheme didn't get right is not having the funds to replace what you sell. So most councils where they sold council homes, they haven't been able to replace it because the funding hasn't been there for them to be able to do that. Now, if councils had that, I think if the councils were able to build in replace of what they've sold, then we would have a, a, an okay situation in terms of our social housing register being reduced and people going into homes and being able to settle with their families instead of staying in emergency accommodation for more than six months, which is now what is happening. Um, and as a local councillor, I see really, really, you know, very, very difficult the situations in my borough, for example, where kids don't have secure accommodation. They're in shared spaces that are mouldy, that aren't great in emergency accommodation. They need council help. But then they all the more reason for the 80-odd grand a year guy then to but, move but on then again, let that kid... But, but then again, how can a council tell someone, for example, to, to move out of the house just because two people who are earning, I don't know what, that raises up to 80K... Um, that you're now above the threshold and you need well, to leave. you do it quite easily. You build it into the tenancy arrangement that you have, that this is your property. But I don't think that that's fair, though, because I mean, they waited 10 to 20 years on in really bad situations to get there in the first place. Now that they've slowly starting to, say, to change their life circumstances, we're saying, well, now you need to get out. I think that there's unique situation. If you're a billionaire, you should not be living in a council house, for example. Or well, I mean, if you, if you were... Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's that's. Why would a billionaire? I don't be... know, but I'm just saying that like that it, that's ridiculous. And I agree with you, um, David, when you said um, you know about owning other property. And I think that it's on councils to be investigating. They do have housing enforcement officers that should be going around and che checking houses of multiple occupancy and other accommodation to make sure that people aren't defrauding the system. Um, and there are checks in place to be able to do that. Tony uh, said uh, the big crime here is the number of people in council property who are subletting it out for a profit. I think that's one of the mm. points that David uh, was making. Bob says we can all thank uh, Thatcher for the current council house mess. Uh, there should never, ever, ever have been sold off. That says Bob uh, again and someone else uh, in touch again about the sublet. Uh, he's saying, without being um, problematic, we saw evidence of this at the horrific Grenfell Tower tragedy. Yes, we did. Uh, that was awful. And I have to say, this subletting thing that's coming through on the email, a lot of people agreeing with you mm. on that one. Bernard says, though, as long as uh, people are paying their own rent, why not? Just because you earn 80 grand now, you may or may not be earning 80 grand next year. So why should you have to lose your home, Philip says, though, Michelle, I've said for years, a council house should only ever be a temporary step on the ladder. It should never be a house uh, for life, but a starter home for young couples with very cheap rent that would allow people to save for their own home in later life. Um, that's an interesting sentiment. Uh, Brian says one of the biggest problems in this sector is lifetime tenancies. Get rid of those and you'd fix some of the problems. Oh, there you go. They are gone. But some people live on the legacy ones, though, don't yeah, they? Yeah, the legacy ones are still there, but, but mo the, most of the new uh, tenancies on council homes are not lifelong. There you go. That answered that one then. Well, that is pretty much all we've got time for. Time flies, doesn't it? Uh, the thing I like most about today's show is you're still writing in to me about whether or not you like to be wolf whistled. <laughs> I'll be hearing wolf whistles in my oh, sleep God. tonight, so I will. Pamana, uh, David, thank you very much for your company. Thank you at home for yours as well.
Have a great night and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.